If you have your Bibles with you, please turn me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Continue on in our series in the Gospel of Mark. And today, the passage before us is is, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Open your hearts now with faith to receive the holy and inspired word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Loved ones in Christ, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest it, that through the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all the people of God said together, Amen. Well, we are in story number three out of four of what is sometimes called the controversy narratives here in the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark. This is Gospel of Mark chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6. There's basically four stories here that are are thematically tied together. And in each of them, Jesus demonstrates his unique authority in some particular way. And in demonstrating that authority, he stirs up controversy. Because others think that they have a greater authority than he does. So we've seen him show that he has the authority to forgive sins. We saw him last week have the authority to heal sins those who recognize their need. Last week's passage ended with Jesus and Levi's friends sitting together feasting. You remember that? They sat down together to a feast. And now today's passage is about the opposite end of that spectrum, fasting. What is this? What is fasting? Um, What's it have to do with the ministry of Jesus? What does Jesus say about it? Has he done away with it? Should we practice it as Christians? And if we are supposed to practice it, what purpose does it serve in the Christian life? Well, Jesus here in this passage before us today shows us that Christian feasting and fasting are all centered on him. He determines our posture towards these actions, these religious actions. And because he is near to us, we are to be a feasting people. 
But because he also, in another sense, a very important sense, is away from us, Christians are also fasting people. It's a both and. What is this all about? What's this all about then? Well, let's look at this in, in three steps. And the first step here is to understand the question that has been posed to Jesus. Why don't your disciples fast? That's the central question of the passage. We read in verse 18, a strange combination of groups now approach Jesus. So far in this gospel, it seems like the Pharisees are somewhat opposed to him. And John the Baptist and his people are the the biggest champions of Jesus. But now here we see that whatever their ideologies, whatever their allegiances, they share one thing in common. They share in common this act of fasting, the discipline of fasting. Now, what we're talking about here, of course, is religious fasting. So this, is, this isn't fasting that's tied to, the, to particularly to health reasons or to a particular kind of eating plan. But it is, it's a, a sacred abstaining from food and drink as an act of devotion to God. And uh, throughout the scriptures, it's, it's usually united to prayer. Jesus himself does this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. When you fast and when you pray... Are taken together. The Pharisees, who appear for the first time in our passage last week, they show up here again, and we learn that they, they're an extremely devout party among the Jews. They, they, they represent for the people a kind of upper echelon, the religious elite. And they had added all kinds of traditions to the law of Moses. That law that God truly did give to Moses and to the people of God back in the Old Covenant. Well, the Pharisees wanted so desperately to obey that law that they added traditions to it and, in many cases, by and large, ended up abusing it. And similarly, they've done the same thing with fasting in an effort to try to very stringently and strictly obey any command from God to fast. Now they've added their traditions to it and it has become one of their victims Uh, just like many of the other commandments of the Lord. Here's what I mean by this. In the actual law of Moses, in Scripture, there's only one day that is set aside for the people of God to fast. Only one day commanded for the people of God to fast. And that day is the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That is the, the one day a year where the high priest over the people of Israel go into the holy place, the most holy place within the tabernacle or within the temple and make atonement for the sins of the people of God. It is the high holy feast of the people of God in the Old Covenant. So it makes sense that that's the the one day that God made mandatory for fasting for the people of God because fasting was an outward expression of humility, of humbling oneself and of grieving over those very same sins now being atoned for in the most holy place. And so the people of God were called to fast for the Day of Atonement. Now, in later times, we read in in later passages of the New Testament, perhaps five other feasts that became part of the, the, the festal calendar, the liturgical calendar for Israel. We read about four of those feasts in Zechariah earlier in our our reading. 
Uh, another one is added in the book of Esther. Uh, the Feast of Purim has not just feasts involved, but also fasts involved. Okay, so now we recognize that maybe, maybe, annually, there might be six mandatory fasts by the later stages of the nation of Israel. But the Pharisees fasted two times a week. Two times a week. Mondays and Thursdays. Every week, adding their traditions to the Word of God and then using it to humble themselves. There's always so much almost comedic irony in the, in the Gospels about the Pharisees. So serious about obeying God and being humble that they use all this being humble to actually make themselves look good and to exalt themselves. So that's the Pharisees. That's why they're fasting. As for the disciples of John the Baptist, their fasting was almost certainly for different reasons. Because John the Baptist is one of the heroes of the Gospels. And his movement, the movement that drew disciples to him, was a movement of true repentance. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance. He administered a baptism of repentance. And he called on all Israel and Judah to repent. And so their practice, the practice of fasting for the disciples of John's, almost certainly was a more faithful practice. Whatever the case, whatever it looked like, whether they were following the same schedule of the Pharisees or not, whatever the case... These followers of the Pharisees and the followers of John the Baptist all practiced religious fasting. And they did it to such an extent that for now this new rabbi, with a great following beginning to follow him, the fact that he and his disciples are not fasting raises once again all kinds of questions. Who do you think you are? Gathering all these people around you, you don't even fast. And your disciples don't even fast. So that's why they ask the question. Now we understand why. The Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, particularly tying this to those old covenant ways of doing things, were prolific fasters. And the fact that Jesus and his disciples don't seem to be doing it at all leads them to ask the question. Well, what's the answer to the question? They've asked, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus has an answer for them. But in, um, in, in similar fashion to the way that Jesus will often answer his opponents, he doesn't give them a very straight answer. Jesus here, this is something we can develop as we get into the, uh, the, the, the rest of this gospel. Jesus here is speaking like one of the old sages, one of the old wise men. Everything we read about in the book of Proverbs about the wise and their riddles. Jesus is now stepping into the office of sage and he's speaking of one of the wise men of the people of God, the true wise man of the people of God. And he's putting a riddle out there for them to chew on and think about. And now very thankfully, we have 2000 years and we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection. It comes to us with quite a bit more clarity than it did to these original askers of the question. So to answer the question, Jesus doesn't give a straight answer. He gives three illustrations. Three illustrations. The main answer is tied up in this illustration about a wedding. And then he backs up this answer with two other illustrations. One about clothing and one about wineskins. 
And his point in all three of these illustrations, his point is that a new era has arrived. And in a very important sense, this new era that his arrival has marked, this new era is incompatible with the ways of life under the Old Covenant. The disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist represent, in different ways, mind you, but in in, in different ways, they both represent the practices of that old way, of that old covenant. And now that Christ has come, those practices have to be thoroughly reconsidered, reinterpreted, repracticed, if if they're to be practiced at all. Later in the Gospels, we'll see Jesus speak more fully in parables, but here we get the very first glimpse of it. In, in um, Luke's account of this story, he actually calls these parables. Look with me first at verses 19 through 20. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the, the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In that day, Jesus' response here shows us what the meaning of fasting actually is. If, if a, a wedding is a time for celebration, you have a big party around it, then fasting symbolizes the opposite end. A wedding has a feast and celebration. Fasting symbolizes mourning, grieving, lamenting. In Matthew's Gospel, as he records this very same encounter with the, with the, with the Pharisees and the disciples of John, Matthew records, him, records Jesus saying it like this. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And so like the Pharisees and like the disciples of John, Jesus does take religious fasting to mean a similar thing. It means mourning. That's what it symbolizes. It's grieving over one's sins and humbling oneself under God. But his point is that the situation has changed. There's been new developments. In fact, there's been one significant new development. It's that he's come. He's finally arrived. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke about the relationship between God and his people as a marriage. And God himself is the bridegroom. That's how the prophets speak about this relationship. And Jesus now says, he is the bridegroom. Once again, do not let anybody tell you, the Bible doesn't say anything about Jesus being God. This is Jesus identifying himself as God identifies himself in Scripture. Jesus is this bridegroom, and if the wedding guests have their bridegroom with them, then it's party time. It's time for celebration. It's time for feasting, not fasting. The situation has changed, and so fasting and mourning, at least as the Pharisees and as the disciples of John the Baptist are practicing it, is the wrong kind of response to such a situation. The arrival of Jesus marks the beginning of a new era. And while he's around, the people of God are called to celebrate. Now then, Jesus backs up this teaching 
with two other illustrations. Look with me at verse 21. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. In Jesus' illustration, he pictures a, a piece of old clothing that has a hole in it. And he says that if you just take a new patch of clothing and sew it right onto it, then what will happen later when you wash that garment is that the new patch will shrink, because that's what a new garment does when it gets washed. It'll shrink, and it'll tear away from the old garment that you tried to patch up, and it'll make it even worse. Instead of mending the hole, you'll actually just make it worse. You'll make the whole thing worthless. Um, So you can't sew on an unshrunk new piece of garment onto an old piece of garment that's already been shrunk. That's, that's the meaning of this illustration here. Something new just can't be pasted on to something old. All right, he goes on into verse 22, and he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. And so new wine is for fresh wineskins. Wine, of course, is, by, is made by crushing grapes. You can ask the Bryant family how to do this. Wine is made by crushing grapes. And the sugars of those grapes begin to ferment, and carbon dioxide is released. So there is air that's coming out of this fermentation process. And in the ancient world, a good portion of this process would happen inside the wineskins made out of goat hide. So you have these skins, and if they're new then there's some wiggle room in them. If you have fermentation happening inside of the wineskins, then the wineskins, because of that air that's beginning to be released, it will stretch the wineskin. So if you've got new wine and new wineskin, you've got some compatibility here. There's room in that new wineskin to stretch. This is a common enough practice. Jesus doesn't have to explain this. We have to explain it now. This is how it is done in the ancient world. But if you were to put new wine that still has to ferment and still has to release that air into old wine skin that's already reached its capacity for stretching, then the new wine will cause the old wine skin to burst. Relatively straightforward once we understand the the ancient practice. Uh, And you'd not only lose the wine skin, you'd lose the wine. Now, in all of this, Jesus is saying that his arrival, his teaching, his proclamation of the kingdom of God is a new thing. It's a new thing. God promised it by the mouth of the prophets and specifically the prophet Isaiah. God said, behold, I have come to do a new thing in your midst. And Jesus now comes and saying, he's saying to the, the Pharisees and to the disciples of John, You can't put something old, new, onto something old. And what I've come to do and what I've come to proclaim and who I am, it's all new. It's part of the new thing that God has always promised to do. It's like a new cloth that can't be fitted onto an old garment without damaging it. It's like new wine that can't just be put into old wineskins without destroying it. And fasting 
at least as it's practiced by the disciples of the Pharisees and of John the Baptist, is not appropriate to this new era. It's like grieving at a wet wedding celebration. Have you ever gone to a wedding reception and somebody is just being a wet blanket? They're, they're, they can't be happy. They're just upset. It's not appropriate. It's not appropriate for the Pharisees and for the disciples of John to be grieving because the groom has arrived. And times of refreshment have arrived. And times of restoration and celebration have arrived because Jesus Christ has come. And this is because, you know, it's not like Jesus is just some guy. He's the hope of the ages. Jesus says in John chapter 8, John chapter 8 verse 56, he's speaking about the Old Testament patriarch Abram. Now, we're we're rewinding now thousands of years. And Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, Jesus' day. He rejoiced to see his day. How could the old covenant people rejoice to see anything about Jesus? He's not coming for a long time. They saw it by faith. God made gospel promises to the people of God. He made promises to Abraham. And Abraham believed these promises. And by faith he saw ahead. And knew. And he didn't know all the details. But he saw that a time would come when a Messiah would come to save his people from their sins. Abraham and all the saints of the Old Testament saw this day from afar. And Jesus says, what, what did Abraham do when he saw? He rejoiced. He rejoiced. And now that Messiah has actually come. And if the Old Testament saints rejoiced just by seeing it from afar and anticipating it by faith, how much more now must the saints of God rejoice that God has fulfilled his promises in Jesus Christ? The promised king has come and with him, the kingdom has come. The bridegroom has arrived And so we must be marked by celebration. That's Jesus' answer. Jesus gets a lot done in a short amount of words. That's why the Bible is so wonderful. Jesus says one or two things and you start to think about the significance of it and what he might be saying that's echoing the Old Testament. And everything he says is so profound you could never reach the end of it. They ask a very simple question. Why don't your disciples fast? Jesus says, I am the hope of the ages. I am the bridegroom. And we must now, while I'm with you, we must celebrate. Lastly this morning, the question remains, should we fast? Should we, as Christians here in this new covenant age, now that Christ has come, should we practice religious fasting, Christian fasting? Well, if we follow Jesus' teaching here, The actual question is, is the bridegroom with us? That's that's the hinge of the whole thing. Because Jesus says, while the bridegroom is with his people, they can't fast. They can't fast. So the question for us is, is the bridegroom with us? If he is, we ought to feast and celebrate. And if he's not, we ought to fast and mourn. So is the bridegroom with us? an interesting question. In a profound sense, 
Yes. Yes, he is with us. The last words of the Gospel of Matthew are Jesus speaking to his followers. And he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he says that right before he ascends into heaven and leaves. <laughs> now, was Jesus lying? No. No, he says in another place in the Gospels, it is to your advantage that I leave because I cannot send the Holy Spirit unless I go and receive him first. Jesus is with us because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And as, as sure as we have the Holy Spirit, then we have Jesus himself. We worship one God in three persons. If you have the blessed person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart, then you have Christ. You have Christ. He is very near to you, and he is with you always. Always. No matter what the season of life is that you're in. Christ does not withhold his presence and his love and compassion from you. Because you're going through a hard time. And for the people of God who have true faith in Jesus Christ, He does not withhold His presence and His blessing from you when you are struggling with particular sins. That is all the more reason for us to recognize His presence with us is during those times. I'm with you always. There's no asterisk there. I'm with you always, unless you're really being bad. I'm with you always to turn you around, to lift up your head, to help you repent and to turn away from sins. I'm with you always, he says. But, Jesus gives a very ominous hint of another side to this coin in verse 20. Verse 20 says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Brothers and sisters, we actually share in this grief that Jesus is speaking of here. In that day, they will fast. They will mourn. They will have grief in their lives. And so fasting will be, in this sense, an appropriate practice. And so we share in this grief. Not because Jesus has been taken away from us to go be crucified. That's done. But because he's away from us at all, there is reason to grieve. Jesus is truly in heaven. He is the God-man. He came down from heaven and he took human flesh. And so Jesus is, according to his, his divine nature, he's everywhere. By his Holy Spirit, he's everywhere. But he is a man with flesh and bone. And he is somewhere. He is in heaven by that human nature. And because he is there, he signals to us that he has not yet returned and that all things have not yet been made new. He hasn't returned yet to consummate his kingdom, to fulfill the kingdom, to make it so that his knowledge covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. The new creation has not come fully yet. The kingdom has come, but not fully. We have to make no mistake here that the world has truly been changed forever by his first coming. Nothing is ever the same. The bridegroom has come. Uh, but last I checked, it is still a world that is filled with sin and filled with grief and filled with sorrow and sadness and abuse and all kinds of awful things. 
Christians don't come to the world and look around with, with pie in the sky sensibilities. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. It's a world that is filled with sin and death. And grieving over our sins and over the state of the world is perfectly appropriate. Now then, what does this mean that we have a both and answer to the question, is the bridegroom with us? It's yes and no. It depends on the perspective from which you're asking the question. What does it mean for us? Well, it does mean that the emphasis in the Christian life and the emphasis for the church of Jesus Christ is on celebration and rejoicing. That's the emphasis. Christ has come. The kingdom has arrived. His blood has been shed to take away your sins. It's as good as done. You have the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You are safe in his arms. And so we are a feasting people. We are to be filled with joy. That's, this, by the way, this is why Jesus has instituted a mandatory feast in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and not a mandatory fast. We must feast. We are commanded to feast. And the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, if you have this Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit includes joy, Galatians 5.22. The kingdom of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 14, is a matter of joy in the Holy Spirit. We pray in Psalm 51, verse 12, we, we sang it earlier, Restore to me, O God, the joy of my salvation. To be saved is to be filled with joy and rejoicing that our sins are no longer imputed to us, but that the righteousness of Jesus Christ, rather now, belongs to us. That we belong to Him, that He will never leave us, never forsake us, and will be with us all the way into glory. Christians are to be the most joyful people on the earth. But we live in the overlap of the ages. This, it is a joyful age, but it is a sorrowful age still. Christ's kingdom has begun, but not fully. And that should give us deep sorrow. Deep sorrow. And sometimes it's easier to feel that sorrow than others. It's not a sin to be sad. You can do sinful things with sadness. But it is not a sin to be sad. In fact, it's appropriate to be sorrowful over our own sins. To recognize that we're still struggling in this life. On this long pathway of sanctification. That's a grievous thing. It's uh, good to grieve over the state of the world. Over the trials of our life. And so, in this sense, fasting is also to be a practice that we take up. It is perfectly appropriate. Jesus gives instructions about it in the Sermon on the Mount, about the appropriate way to go about doing it. And he says, when you fast, not stop fasting, is when you fast, clearly assuming that sometimes his people will practice it. We see Christians fasting in the book of Acts. It comes after the Gospels, obviously. The Christians that are still in the world after Christ has ascended into heaven are fasting. They do so especially during very important moments in sending people off to missionary journeys. They fast when they are electing elders for the churches. During momentous times in the life of the church, they fast. They recognize and remember their sins before the Lord, and they ask for the favor of the Lord. Fasting is not some mystical thing where we're trying to see the secret will of God. That's a very concrete thing where we're telling God 
with our very bodies. I am sinful and I need your help. Show us the way. And so the challenging and humbling practice of Christian fasting is indeed a practice for us to continue. We do not prescribe continual mandatory fasts like in the Old Covenant or like in the Roman Catholic Church. So we, don't, we don't believe in that. But during times when we're particularly devoted to prayer, during times of particular corporate hardship, whether in our church or in the nation or in the world, or during important moments in the life of a church body, it is a good thing for the elders to call on the people of God to fast and to pray and to seek the favor of the Lord. In your private life, similarly, fasting is meant to help you grow in holiness. It's one of the tools that God has given you to recognize your sin, to ask for help, and to grow in holiness. And we do it because we have been saved, not in order to be saved. As with all of our Christian disciplines, we do it because we are saying thank you for what Christ has already done. We do it to remember our sins and weakness. We do it to humble ourselves. And we do it to focus particular attention on the Lord and on our need. So practice it in measured ways with a set time period to it. You're not monks. So particular time set to it and unite it with faith and with prayer. That's the way to practice Christian fasting. Dear brothers and sisters, a new era has dawned. Truly, the world has never been the same since Christ has come. And it is an age that is marked by joy and celebration. He's conquered your sins. He promises to be with you even to the end of the age. But while we wait for his return, let us not turn away from a practice just because it's difficult. But let us learn how to grieve over our sins and to seek God's face, especially when we live in a world that is so filled with sorrow and wickedness, knowing that one day he will return. Our bridegroom will come. And we will then feast with him forever. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask now that you would write this word on our hearts and cause it to bear fruit in our lives with holiness and with thanksgiving. We ask and pray all these things for Jesus' sake, who lives with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.